they say, oh, but aren't you so glad that you're in America? I said, well, I know a lot of Russian filmmakers. They have a lot more freedom than I have. All they have to do is be careful about criticizing the government. Jason Miles, and I will be one of your hosts today for a special episode of This is Revolution Podcast, more of a pop life edition. Uh, I get to have a fun co-hosting gig today with my good friend J.G. Michael of Parallax Views. We'll be doing cross-stream. This should be streaming on his channel as well. For those of you that uh, usually watch J.G., welcome to This is Revolution. Let me bring in my special guest co-host right now jg michael how's it going it's going great man this was a lot of i'm, I'm really excited to do this because uh, our guest doesn't know but i reached out to him a while back um, i wanted to get him on the show uh, he's a busy man and i'm sure it fell into the uh massive inbox of, of nowhere um but <laughs> When we, we put our powers together, JG. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And we were able to, to nail this down. I did watch uh, Society right beforehand. I, I was lucky enough to have enough time to do that. Um, get a good rewatch in to really appreciate that movie once again. Watched it with some people that had never seen it. So that's always fun too. And have them go, whoa, what the fuck? That was pretty cool. <laughs> well do you want to introduce uh, our guest so we're going to be speaking with brian yuzna who i think is one of the most interesting genre filmmakers uh, i would say he works in horror sci-fi and fantasy uh, mm. his movies include society the dentist the dentist 2 uh, the reanimator films which are cult classics uh, the underrated Rottweiler, and many, many others. I believe he was also involved with, um, uh, was it Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? I, I guess we'll find out. Ooh, ooh, that's, that's some deep cut trivia right there. Please welcome filmmaker Brian Usna. Hello. Thank you oh so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I, I can't imagine if you reached out to, for me to be on your podcast. I don't know when. I'm just telling you, I, I mean, this is very special, but mm. I never say no. <laughs> so I, you know, I could have gotten the I think your, your email must have gotten put into the, um, into the kind the, the of junk, the junk, junk folder. Thing. Yeah. Because uh, I, yeah. I'm pretty much, I pretty much am always game to, to talk about, you know, myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Were you Aren't involved? We in all right, is it? Yeah, well, I I originated that movie with Stuart Gordon, my partner, um, in right here where I am, right in the backyard. We were having a barbecue. We both have a bunch of kids. Mm-hmm. We're family guys, and Stuart, we just made a few horror movie, and we had made. I think we'd made um, Reanimator. We were working on From Beyond and Dolls, and Stuart said, you know, we should do a movie for our kids. And I said, well, you know, I always imagined when I was a kid, I'd pretend I was real small and the grass would be huge and the bugs would be riding on a beetle. And he said, oh, yeah, we should call it the Teeny Weenies. It's about a father, shrinks his kids, throw them out in the backyard. It's all about coming home. So right at that, at that barbecue, we kind of came up with the basics of the story. And then um, Stuart being such a, um, you know, he was quite respected theater director from Chicago. Mm-hmm. I was a nobody, I, you know, always have been. But he had had quite a career as a theater director and And he had lots of friends and he had good representation, um, which means he had a good age, he had a top agent. And so we were in Rome um, shooting dolls and from beyond. And he got a, he got us a meeting with Disney to pitch it because we had told each other that this should be a Disney movie with Fred McMurray. Should be one of you know a shaggy dog. <laughs> so that's what we wanted to do. And so actually on the plane over to LA from Rome, we actually Stuart got out a yellow pad and we came up with the treatment. Really? The flight. And then when we got to LA, we had a meeting at Disney and we pitched it to um, David Hoberman, who was an executive there. Mm-hmm. And Stuart was, of course, getting good, you know, good response to Reanimator. Because he got like, I mean, it was just a cheap horror movie, mm-hmm. but because he was such a established, you know, such a um, experienced director of theater, it was much better than you would have expected. And so we got really good reviews from like Pauline Kael and all these. And so at, at uh, and it's very well done. Mm-hmm. And so then we got a, we got to pitch to, um, to Jeffrey Katzenberg. And Katzenberg. <laughs> at that time, you know, it was Eisner and Katzenberg. Yeah. And so we pitched to him and then he took us to lunch in the executive dining room at Disney. Um, and and everybody's looking at you uh and he said you know what we want to do this but you got to change the title because that title teeny weeny it sounds like a low budget porn movie (laughs) 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 and so then we started i mean it just went forward and we started developing it while we were shooting from beyond and it came all the way around to where we were going to do it and they called, and somebody came up with the title of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which I think was brilliant. And we got Ed Naha, who had written Dolls, to write it. Mm-hmm. And of course, we were all kind of out of our depth because we're used to making movies with, um, you know, just us 
you know, let's go to the, let's put on a show in the barn, you know, yeah. where we had no, Stuart was used to running his theater mm-hmm. and I never liked working for anybody. And I didn't know what I was doing anyway. I never had any, any um, experience, you know, I had no training to be in the movies or anything like that. And um, so all of a sudden we're thrown into a bigger situation but more than that, it was a it was a situation where they were very talented, very high powered people mm-hmm. who didn't like the fact that you had one of the slots for a movie. Because mm-hmm. at that time, Disney made like eight movies a year, mm-hmm. and they had people with housekeeping deals, big time producers, big time mm-hmm. directors. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, these two idiots get a slot. We get one of the movies going forward. And so, of course, it, it, all of a sudden, you're in the shark tank. There, People are actually working against you. It was very, very stressful. I had actually, we shot it in Mexico. I had moved my family down there. That's where I live now. And my kids were in the Mexico City. Okay. DF, you know, DF, right? Mm-hmm. Is that where you are? No, I'm in Baja. Oh, okay. And so it's Chiribusco Studios. Mm-hmm. They were building, you know, no digital. So mm-hmm. every blade of grass took like five guys to carry. We had six, we had five, I think, of the eight big studios there. We took over Chiribusco. And unfortunately, the stress of the whole thing got to the point where Stuart, um, Stuart has ha- always had high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he, the, the, the stress got so bad and he said he had to pull out. And it was just, we'd already cast and everything. And so when that happened, it was um, all of a sudden it was a big insurance claim. And um, ultimately Joe Johnston, um, uh, got the job to pick up for Stuart mm-hmm. and he had his own producer. And so Stuart and I were out. I mean, we made a lot of money on it, but it was very disappointing. Ultimately. I, I do want to ask this before I know JG has a, has some questions to ask you. I do want to ask this one follow-up question before, before I give the, the floor to JG. Um, how did you get out of that big studio system when you, you kind of jump in the the deep end of the pool so to speak in you know doing this big disney movie which gets what two or three sequels was it three sequels or two well they had a tv one yeah they had the tv show i I was yeah i never got into studio system stewart did stewart actually got a housekeeping deal at disney Mm -hmm. and had an office on the lot and, but he kind of ran into a brick wall too, because he, the only thing he ever got made out of that was the, the wonderful ice cream suit, which you might not even know of, or which was a play he did in, at the organic theater in Chicago. And it, it's just, you know, you're dealing, it's a lot of politics in the studio and you've got to, you know, I guess it, if you've got a big hit, then you've got the next one. So I was never in it. I don't think I, I didn't even know about um, what the studio business was like when I was um, when I was um, when I came out. 
-hmm. have to understand that I, I didn't even come out to LA to make movies until I was in my thirties. Smart move. I just, I just, and I had no, I never took a class. I never, you know, I was a hippie. I lived in communes and I was a carpenter and I had an art supplies. I used to paint paintings. I had a bar. I I I was going to, I was going to say real quick, wasn't Stuart a bit in, into the hippie counterculture scene too with well, his own theater work? He was definitely also of that generation. And, you know, we grew up in the 60s. So I think Stuart might have been a year or old or two older than me. But I, I went, to, I graduated high school in 67, which was the summer of love. <laughs> and of course, I... I was involved with, you know, I went at that time, everybody was into politics, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we're, it was all, you know, they shut down the college and I went to these big anti-war marches in DC and, uh, you know, all these big movement things. And then of course, I was also taking a lot of LSD and stuff, right? Because that was also part of the whole thing. And it um, and then you know Timothy Leary said turn on tune in drop out, mm. so I did it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I moved out into the country. I mean it was very difficult to do that, really. I mean it wasn't. It was really really hard to step out of the whole program, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, coming out of the fifties, if I had been born five years earlier, of course I wouldn't have. It just happened to be that moment in time. And I was, you know, uh, you know, seeking myself and I was involved in the, you know, I was in the whole, the whole kind of hippie movement and stuff. And um, I ended up out in the country. This was in North Carolina. And um, it was a kind of a community of, of like communes. Mm-hmm. And some were the one that I lived next door. I had a, have my own place. I, I always kept a job. And the best hippies, the best communists, their parents sent them money. <laughs> but my parents never did, right? Uh-huh. So, you know, to, to be, you know, it's, it's hard to be really countercultural unless you have a source of income. So I was always Ooh. going into town and pounding nails. Mm. And that was kind of a little bit politically incorrect, but I did have some people living in teepees in my back field. I had a farmhouse. I had a farm, right? And um, and so, but there were some that were very political, right? Super political. And then others that were more ecological and some that were more music and let's have a good time, bands. So it was sort of a... a, a um, it was kind of a community, hmm. but it, um, and there was always a lot of drugs, you know, but it was um, ultimately what happened is the revolution didn't happen. So that was the big, dis- you know, all of a sudden you have, the, you dropped out, you went into the agrarian, you went out into the country, and then the revolution didn't happen. And things just kept inching along, mm-hmm. slogging along. And then it was like, gee, and I, I quit college. 
<laughs> I didn't <laughs> learn the trade. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting a little too old to kind of not have some, some, um, I mean, I didn't even have a toilet in my house, you know? Oh, I mean, you were, you we were, that's a real communist, outhouses. right? Oh, we all had outhouses. And at, at one point, you just don't want to live that way. Exactly. And so then you have to figure out how to how to make money. And as it um, as I went through my twenties and figured out ways to make money, at one point, at one point, I, I did a lot of art generally. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I did, I did photography, and I had a, a, a um, kind of a, um, a, a um, developing studio and stuff in my house, which of course today you don't need any of that crap, right? Mm. But I had a, this nice Nikon camera and this guy borrowed it. He went traveling and he lost it. Mm. And so he came back and instead of paying me for the Nikon, he gave me one of these 60 millimeter Bolex cameras, which in the 70s, up 60s and 70s had been used for TV news gathering. So they were these mm. cameras that had like 100 feet of film, mm -hmm. three lenses, no sound. They were wind up. There was no battery or anything. You just mm. wound them up and then you could shoot for a minute. And that's, and you choose your lens. And that's mm. what they used to have for TV news. But what happened was that. In the early 70s, they, the TV, they, they got three-quarter inch video. So when three-quarter inch video came in, they could make a camera small enough to shoot on, on, on video. Mm -hmm. And then you don't, have to, uh, you don't have to develop it. So you don't have to rush it to the lab and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's developed right in the camera. So all of a sudden, everybody started shooting on you know, the news crews everywhere started shooting three quarter inch video, you know, when they go on location. Mm. And, um, and so they were dumping all these Bolex cameras. So I got one of them. And then I thought, well, I'm going to shoot film, you know. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I had a place in the country on a river. I had about 15 goats. I had a bunch of turkeys and stuff. And so I would just shoot my goats, right? Mm -hmm. And my and I, then I had a, I, I got a projector and I'd sit at my house and, and watch the black and white footage. And I went, wow, this is like Bergman. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa, because you know, back in the sixties, everything was the French new wave. Right? Mm -hmm. We loved Fellini and Bergman and Godard and Truffaut. And, oh, it was all, you know, it was art movies were the thing, you know, that yeah. was it. And I was always a big movie fan, and of course, always a horror fan. But when I, you know, in the 60s, there was a lot of art, stuff, art film type stuff. And, um, and so then I, I thought, man, I'm going to shoot a movie. And so I put an ad in a little shopping rag in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and said, I'm looking for some, I had no idea how to do it. And some guy answered my ad and said, I just graduated from... Um, in the radio, television, motion picture department. <laughs> oh. And um, I'm getting unemployment, so I'll just, um, I'll do it for nothing. And so I wrote, a, I wrote a script and we started shooting. 
I had no idea what I was doing. I knew that the, um, I asked my friend, I said, well, just a minute now. I know, I know that the director says action, but what does the producer do? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you see, the producer's the boss and the producer makes the most money. And I said, oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's what I want to be because I've always, I've always preferred being the boss. And I've always preferred making the most money. <laughs> but I didn't realize, of course, till much later that the director gets all the credit. <laughs> there you go. Hey, I'm just saying. <laughs> so, Brian, I have to ask, before we get into society, uh, you know, you, you kind of, you and Stuart both were put on the map by Reanimator, From Beyond, and Dolls. And I believe all those movies were either distributed by or post-production was handled by or in part produced by uh, Empire Pictures, uh, Charles Band's, you know, outfit. And I I think people forget Charles had a really well-oiled machine at that time. You know, he later went on to do the uh, Puppet Master movies for people that are unfamiliar, uh, which were really successful in the 90s. And, you know, what was it like uh, working in the sort of uh, wild world of Charles Band, Empire Pictures, and just that sort of 80s uh, milieu of filmmakers. It was ethically challenged. I, you know, I, I, get that, I got that impression when I read Charles' biography. So. Well, I, I've never read, I don't think I want to read his biography. I think I lost too much money with him. Um, but um, I, when I, when I first came, when I just, I did a, like a, a, um, a um, amateur film mm-hmm. in um, in which, hold one second. Mm-hmm. Uh oh, he's got an emergency. He, he he got out of there quick. One of the goats just the, ate a turkey. The reanimator got to him. <laughs> <laughs> There's a shunting going on in his house. Yeah, no no goats. No. <laughs> but anyway, I I made an amateur film and it was awful. But I got in, I really liked the, um, I really got into the, the, the process of making a movie. I started getting that. And back then, of course, you had to learn everything from books, right? There's no tutorials. I mean, today, Jesus Christ, you can take your, your phone and shoot them. You can yeah. do it all with downloads. I mean, it's amazing, right? But back then it was different. You had to get professionals involved. You had to have labs. You had to have all this equipment. And I started, I won't go into the whole story, but I, I at one point I started realizing, wow, if I, if I, I think making movies would be the most fun thing to do, you know? And um, so how can I do that? I want to do it professionally. Now I will... I will um, digress and say that at one point I had I had gone down to South America with my girlfriend, mm-hmm. and we were kind of backpacking around, and we went to and we were in Cartagena, Colombia, and and we kind of got a bus out to the Santa Marta, which is a beach town, and. Um, you know, we had no money and we were backpacking. And as we went out of 
out of Cartagena, or we, we, we went past this big movie shoot, a big one. I forget what the, I, I think at one point I figured out what movie, it's an American, it was a big movie production. And, um, and as we were going by, I recognized that it was a movie shoot because I had seen Truffaut's Day for Night. And in Day for Night, they show a movie shoot. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I knew about how you make movies. I said, wow, they're shooting a movie there. And then we got our little pensione in Santa Marta. And it was right, you know, it was across the road from the beach. And we, I don't even think we had windows because we couldn't afford a room with windows. And so we went out to have dinner into a, this open air restaurant and had it like some Moriscos. And we're sitting there and these three glistening black jeeps come zooming up and out spills people from the production. They're wearing sunglasses at night. The, 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 they're all glamorous and sexy and having fun. And they all, they pile around some tables just like right next to us, mm-hmm. having the best of time. And I, I remember looking at them and going, I'm on vacation, they're working, and they're having a much better time than I am. And I thought, maybe the movies is kind of a place to go. But anyway, at one point I wanted to make movies and I put an ad and I realized that I had no idea what I was doing as a director. I really didn't have any idea about making movies. I, I just did it by doing it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I put a little ad, um, a one inch ad in weekly variety. And I said, horror movie director wanted. And I put my address. And this is before fax machines. And I got like <laughs> hundreds of letters. <laughs> And so then I got a ticket, I bought an air ticket to LA and went out and interviewed people. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first guy that I, that I went to see was Dick Miller, by the way. Really? <laughs> to direct the horror movie. <laughs> and, 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 and some of the people that I met then, I still, I still know. But it was just from letters and going out and meeting people. And then at one point, I, so I, then I started going to LA mm. and because, I mean, people, I had asked people back in North Carolina that, that were in the exhibition industry. I just wanted to see anybody that was in the business. I had no idea about it. And I remember we met one guy who had been out in Hollywood. And he said, I want to go to Hollywood. And he says, hookers and thieves, hookers and thieves. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you don't go to it. Don't go to LA, you know. And when I came out here, all of a sudden I found everybody like me was here because back then you couldn't be in the movie business and really unless you went to LA. It's like being in fashion. You go to Milan or mm-hmm. cars and you go to Detroit or something. And so all of a sudden I was meeting people that were from all over the country and world. And they were just like me. They wanted to make movies. They couldn't do it at home. And it was like um, young movie maker summer camp. 
Do do you think that's changed a lot though? Well, it certainly has because um, now you anybody can make a movie anywhere. The business is really dispersed. I think what you don't get, and I know this because uh, a, a friend of mine and I have a little business, it's not very profitable, in which we try to handle um, these no-budget movies that people make. You know, people are always making these no-budget movies. They're kind of amateur. It's a sort of a substrata of the movie business. And really, they just circulated among themselves and stuff. And I and I started meeting some of these folks and telling them, you know, you're they're making the movies for nothing. You know, 15, 30, 50 thousand dollars like that, like no budget stuff. And, but they're going to do it one way or another. And I said, well, you know what, if you call me. contact me before you make it and let me give you some advice. You're going to do it anyway so that it's, so maybe you could get your money back because if you don't get your money back, you have a hobby. Mm. If you recoup, it's a business, even if just a little bit. So why not do it as a business? Why not, because it means if you get your money back, it means somebody's watching it. Mm-hmm. If you don't, probably nobody watched it, you know, and you want people to watch it. And so it's so we I sort of started with that. And now we even do some domestic distribution. And we, and we, we are like producers reps. We'll help them get a foreign sales deal because nobody mm-hmm. think about the movie business. Everybody wants to make the movies, but nobody wants to do the business. Uh-huh. And I, I always, because I came into it from the business side of things, mm-hmm. I'm all about, I know that you want, to, you want to be able to sell your movie. You want to be able to get the money back. Okay, you can, you can, um, you can be as artistic as you want. And if you don't care if anybody watches that movie, that's fine. It's all very personal. It's very subjective. But if you want to have an audience, you not only have to, you have to know how it's going to get to the audience. And to get to it, a lot of people have to make, a, make something on the way. And the hardest thing is knowing the contracts. Now, if I, if I had been more sophisticated, Empire Pictures wouldn't have stolen millions from me. But when you go out to L.A. to make movies and you put money in a movie, Mm. the lamb gets fleeced because people you just want to be in the business. So from my point of view, so that's what I try to and and I can make a few bucks and and also be involved in this. I can't make no budget movies. Nobody's going to work for me for nothing. Right. (laughs) You know, everyone thinks you're rich Work for me for free, you know, oh, sure. Right. But if you're some guy in in fucking Dayton, Ohio, Mm -hmm. and and you want to make movie, you want to make a movie, you do get your friends to do it for free. You do get every you do. People pitch in Mm -hmm. and the really what everybody wants is for that movie to get seen and to have some kind of profile. So that's what we try to, um, what, you know, what we try to provide. 
I forgot how I got off on that. Now I'm, <laughs> now I'm pitching. <laughs> well, I mean, what, how do you feel though? Because anybody can make a movie right now. You're right. You know, uh, if you have a camera phone, they're pretty great cameras on these newfangled uh, doohickeys called camera Come phones. Come on, man. Um, much better than what we used to shoot on, probably. So, and, and I've, and, I've you, seen, and you don't have to have a light meter. You don't have to deal with the lab. Super I mean, easy. Amazing. And you can you download Final mm-hmm. Cut, and you and look. And you stop talking about me on air. You mix stop. it yourself. <laughs> Jeez, you don't have to have a professional involved. I'm in the process of finishing up a. Video, we call it video essays or a documentary uh, about the way we consume media called kayfabe. I, I juxtapose mm-hmm. wrestling and and media, pro wrestling and media, and we're in the process of finishing that up. And and yeah, lot, most of it's just found footage and, and Final Cut. I have a ripped version of Final Cut on a very old <laughs> computer. Um, but but be, it is hey, hard to get these things contact seen. Contact me. I'll help you with the deal. I, you, <laughs> You know, it's you, funny. You know, contracts are very tricky. That's the toughest thing because, mm-hmm. you know, I was trying to make a video game deal. And the lawyers that I deal with said, hey, we're not video game people. Mm-hmm. And you look at those. I, have, I can make a movie deal, movie distribution, movie production, mm-hmm. movie financing. You know, I know how those deals work. You go to video games, you're kind of like, Whoa, what are you talking about? So people who are have not been in the movie business go to the markets and stuff. You make a movie. Why would you know how the deals work, how the contracts work? And it's all about the contracts, you know. Mm-hmm. And even the lawyer you get back in Dayton, they're not in that business. So then you need a LA lawyer. Well, you can't, the fucking LA lawyer is going to cost you as much as your damn movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's very true. That's very true. JG, I know you had some questions. Well, I was going to say, uh, getting into society, I was really interested in talking about society because I think I told you, Brian, uh, I've talked to Zeph Daniel, uh, who helped write society. And I know the story of this movie uh really changed over time it sort of started in zeph's mind as a sort of satanic cult story and he has his own backstory about that and why he wanted to do that type of story but over time it devolves into something very different so how did society come together and how did the story evolve because my understanding is it starts out as like a satanic cult slasher and then turns into this insane sort of body horror movie so here here is the script that rick fry um zeph or woody keith as he is known then gave to me that we made into society so if you read this (laughs) you would see that it's um it's a lot different from what the movie was. But what really what really was there is this paranoid feeling that there's some some kind of world, some kind of thing going on 
that we don't know about. And there's an incredible feeling of paranoia from him. I had, I had just spent a year working with Dan O'Bannon, who you might know he directed, uh, he made um, Return Living Dead. Mm -hmm. and, I think he um, wrote Alien, right? Alien, wrote Alien. And he was a weirdo, a, a super weirdo. And, um, and I would work with him late at night in, at his house. And we were working on a project called The Men. And it was his idea. It was about a woman that discovers that all men are aliens. Now, this is 1987. Now, today, this movie doesn't really work because we're not so binary in our, in our versions of, um, of sexuality or gender. Mm -hmm. um, but back then, it was really crazy cool, really fun. And um, it was a woman who just discovers this. And, then, and it's very genre, very monster. And she um, and she's um, realizes that her whole idea of what the world is is totally. Um, she's been wrong. Mm -hmm. There's this incredibly weird thing going on. Uh, Dan is Dan O'Bannon. Right when I got some financing for it, um, he backed out, and I was really let down. And I was trying to, you know, I, I felt bad about that. And then Rick Fry came up and gave me this script and I read it and I went, wow, this has the same paranoia that the men had, except it's about a kid and his, um, and his, his family. And this kid is, and it's inexplicable, especially at the beginning. It's like, what could be going on? too weird and that not only that the kid has got nothing to complain about he's yeah. in the top he's in the top of the food chain he's a beverly hills kid class president sports star everything he has everything going for him and he feels alienated from his parents which i think every adolescent does right everybody at one point goes, I must be adopted. I can't be, I, I can't be the offspring of these weirdos. Mm -hmm. um, so I love that about it. But it kind of, from my point of view, after the buildup, it was, um, it was kind of a blood cult or something. And even at the end, at the end, Bill is still living with his parents. You know? Yeah. It's not like anything changes. He just kind of goes, oh, my God, how could this be? Now, I know that I know, I, of course, I know Woody very, Woody Zeff very well yeah. and Rick Fry. And I know how it, how it evolved. And, I, and so I'm, I'm very familiar with all that. And I really understand that where it's coming from, from Zeff. I know. I really understand that it's coming from childhood trauma. But what I was looking for was something, I, I just glommed onto it. And then we very, and, and I immediately optioned it and we started working on it. And I, my approach was, I, I thought a couple things. And back then I must say, I didn't stop to think much. I was, Younger, I mean, of course, <laughs> for, for my first directing, 
I guess I was um, about almost 40 when I first directed a movie. Um, but the, um, but I was still, I was like just, I had, I had um, four kids by then. Oh, wow. And I really had to make money. And I had decided to make money making movies. So I was driven. And I, and so when I saw that, I liked it. I had a friend that was making cheap movies. And, and this is when, this is right when the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids thing, when Stuart bailed on that. I mean, he didn't bail he, for health reasons. He, he had to leave it. And all of a sudden I didn't have that. And I, and then the men, Dan O'Bannon bailed out. And I, so I had this, I had a deal where my friend was making movies that they were financed by Japanese investors. Mm -hmm. And the partner was a, um, he was a Brit. They were both Brits, but the partner was a Brit who lived in, in, in Tokyo and was doing, had a family there and was doing business there. So he could, back then the Japanese just had tons of money and they were investing in all kinds of stuff. So he was financing his productions through Japanese money. And they were, um, and so I went to him because I'm more comfortable working with people who own their own businesses, just because mm -hmm. that's the way I am. And I never learned about how the studio system works and stuff. And so I, um, I told them, listen, I've got, you know, I own Reanimator. I own Reanimator because I raised the money to pay for it, so I own it, and um, and I own then the sequel. But instead, I, I I could have gone to New Line or some studio and said, "Do you want to do the sequel to Reanimator?" I'm sure I could have done that, but instead, I went to him and I said, "Look at." Um, I thought at that point I wanted to direct. And I said, I said, look, at, I'll make the sequel with you guys, um, but I want it to be two movies, not just one. I want two movies that I'll direct and produce. And um, the reanimator sequel will be the second one. And the reason I did that was because I had uh, <laughs> this um, French distributor had told me once, he said, you know, most we usually say that most first-time directors make two movies with their first movie, their first and their last. <laughs> because once you make a movie, now you've got a track record. It's easier to make your first movie than your second one. So this and all and also the, you know, of course, there's also this thing about the sophomoric second one, but that's a little different. But the um, but the point is that I thought I've never taken a film class. I have the only thing I know about making movies is being on the set and hiring people. And um, who's it's likely that I'll be terrible as a director. So I want a second chance. So I said, I'll, I want to make the reanimator sequel as the second one, because that's the one they wanted. And you have to finance the first one. So that was the deal I made with a company called Wild Street Pictures. And, um, and then we were looking, and they had the financing. And we were, and I was looking for a movie. 
So I found, uh, so Rick Fry just came up to me. I was coming out of my office. He came up and gave me the script. And so I went and looked at it. And I said, wow, this is, I've been living in this paranoid world of the men. I, I get this world. I love this world um, where you think that there's something going on you don't know about. And, um, but I didn't like the ending. I didn't like the denouement of it. Um, and then the Japanese had asked me, so I started, I started kind of developing it with them in another direction. So what I, what I, when I looked at the script, one thing that stood out, there were a couple of things that stood out to me. One was that it was about, it, there was a strong sense of incest. Mm -hmm. And I had read some horror movie criticism books in which they said that horror movies very often, um, they're really focused on taboos. That, that things that, you know, the taboos of our society. And, um, and one of the biggest taboos is incest. And a lot, of, a lot of horror movies have stories that are around that because we're dealing with taboos. And that's, that's one that's pretty universal. And um, then the other thing was that this was a movie about a super rich kid. And it was all about this Beverly Hills society, which is where Zeph, who used to be Woody Keith, mm -hmm. um, that's where he was from. So he oh, wow. wrote that with a kind of authenticity I could never have written. I, I have no idea about people with a lot of money. I never had a lot. I, you know, my parents well, didn't have a lot of money. You know, they were immigrants, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's not the world. I knew, but he did. He knew that, and he wrote what I considered a satire. I don't think he thought it was a satire. I, I, you could ask him, but I, I think with him, it was almost like a, um, I think it was more like a therapy type of thing that he was story writing. And, and just to clarify, something out. to clarify, so Woody Keith or Zeph, he co-wrote this with Rick Fry. So the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I would say, yeah, of course, but I always say Zeph Woody, they, Rick Fry was a very important element of this, but the, but the, the inspiration of it, the core of it, the nugget of it came from Rick Fry was this egghead physicist guy that worked for you know, as an engineer, he was, he was, um, he has no idea about rich people. <laughs> so obviously, so, but that's the way, that's the way movies are made and scripts are made and stories are made. It's you, your collaborators, everybody brings somebody, something to the table. I could never have brought the I mean, I, that story, I, I, and I, a story about a, a rich kid in Beverly Hills, it's all paranoid and stuff. You know, I'd driven through Beverly Hills. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I've, I never knew rich people or people who were elite or something like that. I, 
I, I mean, I met working in the movie business, I've certainly met people who have become really, really wealthy and very famous. And I've met people who do have a lot of money because you start bumping into some kind of financing things, but not as my, you know, and I've met and I've worked, you know, I've worked internationally a lot. I've made, I think as many movies in other countries as here. And when you travel like that, you do tend to all of a sudden be, be because you're the, the outsider, the foreigner, the American, you start being involved with political people that are you know high up and people who are just wealthy because you're from the outside. But in this country, I would never know, but you know, I don't know. I don't hang out with people who have a lot of money. I mean, I'm sure some people think I do, you know, but you know what I'm talking yeah. about. I'm talking about, about, and, and, and plus you can see in the movie society, what my, what my opinion is anyway. I was going to ask I'm not that. talking about nouveau riche. You're talking I'm about, old... talking about, I'm talking about the real capital that, that, I don't know. I'm not. I don't want to say runs the country. You can say runs the country. But that 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 is the system. That influences. Way. And the you're system. talking, and the, we're talking about. I mean, yeah. I believe that, right? Yeah. And I believe it because when I was a kid, I read everything. You know, no. not just horror stuff, but I read lots of political stuff when I was a kid in the fifties and sixties, and. So I've read all the um, all the, the the all the political kind of theory or I don't know theories or diatribes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I lived through Johnson or Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Nixon. Carter, Carter, Reagan, Reagan Newt Gingrich, you I- know, all that stuff. And I see that the um, and so I've also I was kind of in the in the countercultural type of leftist I, political I, thing, and I really and I kind of internalized a lot of it, right? Because I not that I agree not that I agreed with the extreme part of it, mm-hmm. but you just um, you kind of you get the get the message. Yeah, so you you I really see it, in in the movie society. I mean you really drive home the point of the reality of class. I mean, I remember you even have one character that says, I think to the Bill Whitney character, you know, we've always been sucking off pores like you or whatever. Yeah. Low class shit like you. And so one of the, when we released the movie, I wanted him to put on the poster, a true story. (laughs) (laughs) It's like what they always say about they live, right. You know, it's like a documentary. (laughs) Yeah, well, we, they're yeah, they live was more about about how media kind of brainwashes us, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this was I didn't I was just riffing off of the script I got. So the script I got already had a strong. It was about rich people, mm-hmm. and. I I don't think the script ever really took that as an issue, but 
I just thought that would be a fun thing to do. So when I saw that, I thought, you know what? I want, I, I'd like to have a different monster because I'm a horror guy. Mm-hmm. And you got the Grey Wolf, and you got this, and you got, and you've got San, Santeria, and you've got ghosts. And, and I thought, wow, I grew up during that tumultuous leftist time. And I thought, here's the perfect opportunity to make, to do something different. And then the other part of it was that the, the idea that his parents, he was really from a different world from his parents. And I thought that the, um, that the, that he would, you know, he's a disaffected youth. Mm-hmm. He, I think he, in the, in the original script, he's like adopted, he's not their kid. Um, and I thought that um, the idea that, you know, I tried to think at that time in the eighties, we were, I've always been really into special effects. And, and that was the time which, which I call the invasion of the rubber guys in LA. They were just making cooler, weirder sculptures out of foam latex and all these rubber, all these kind of plastics. And, and every Nightmare on Elm Street movie that came out, they would have more cool, weird crap, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know Rob Bottin and Tom Savini. Tom Savini was more of a gore guy. But, you know, all, you know, uh, the howling and the, the thing and Nightmare on Elm Street. And they just it kept doing cooler and cooler makeup and puppetry effects. And I was really into it. And, and this is pre-digital, of course. And I thought, I remember once I got that script, I said, I'm going to do this and told my guys. And so we started moving forward. I, we, you know, I had optioned it. I was working with the writers and I just lay in bed at night and think, what would I like to see in a movie that I haven't seen? And I thought, well, I'd like to see flesh melding together. So I started imagining this idea because that would be an effect I hadn't seen. It would be really kind of a horror effect and kind of cool and very surrealistic. And so then around that, so then I started speaking with Zeph slash Woody and Rick Fry, and we started trying to develop the, the, the class concept and bring the, the, um, the taboo, the incest more into the foreground. And and we and at that time the Japanese had asked me to meet with Screaming Mad George, who's a Japanese mm-hmm. ex. He had a punk band and yeah, he's part of the whole punk noise scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so his name his name was Joe. His name is he was born Joji Tani, and he went to New York and had a punk band called the Mad, and it was an art punk band. And then because he's an artist basically. And then he really liked Screaming Jay Hawkins. So he gave himself the name Screaming Mad George. <laughs> and he is a real weird guy, right? Because he, back then, he wore, he had blonde hair with colors and wore a lot of makeup. And he wore like Kung Fu boots, you know, where the toes are separate and stuff. And, wore, and he was into martial arts. And so, but I went to see him because he's Japanese. The financer said this might help us in Japan with the movie if we have him involved. And so I went to meet him and I'm a real art guy. 
and I'm really into surrealism. And uh, for example, with with um, with From Beyond, the first poster I came up with for From Beyond, I think it can still be found. I based it on a Salvador Dali painting, um, and and. So George was really into Dali. So I went to his place and he had all these cool paintings, very surrealistic Daliist paintings. And he was really into, into um, like visual contradictions, you know, like, like, um, like, you know, simulacrum and, and weird um, kind of visual things. And so we sat down and started talking about what by that time we were calling the shunting. And I think the name of the, cause I wanted to have a big, a big scene at the end. I wanted a big, I always had this feeling that movies should end with a big blowout. And, um, and that I, I have realized that the reason I do is cause when I was a kid, I saw the 10 commandments Cecil B. DeMille, mm -hmm. and at the end, they have this huge orgy with the golden calf, which was really sexual for being a family film for a little kid. And I just, it really affected me. And I just feel like I always felt like movies should end like that with just some weird orgiastic horror. And so to have this big ending, I, um, by that time, we had I, with Rick and Woody slash Zap, we had been we had been working on that idea, and I forget who it was that came up with the name Shunting. I think it might have been Woody, um, and so by that time we were calling it the Shunting. And then I went to George and I said I have this idea about the flesh melding and stuff, and boom, 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 we were looking at Salvador Dali paintings picking out certain ones to take elements from. And I think within a week or 10 days, he had, he had little maquette sculptures made and he went to town on it. And in fact, this is the movie, this is the best representation society, the shunting, it's the best representation of George's art, I think that there is. I mean, it was the one time his stuff really fit the movie, you know? <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, he's worked on a lot of other movies. I think he even worked on, I know he worked on Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and, and Predator. He did, he, I, did the, um, he did the Roach Motel. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I feel like society is really his, it, it seems like it's it's his most pure expression of the type of art Absolutely. he enjoys because I've, I've seen his um i don't know if you guys know but he had a video game that he made like a pinball video game in japan and you can tell what his sort of aesthetic tastes are from seeing stuff like that so i i think society is probably the best expression of his sort of artistic tastes absolutely and the other one really although it was not a, a successful movie and pretty much was um Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Initiation. And that was where George and I kind of went off our rockers. <laughs> and just With the bugs and went, Clint Howard. Well, and... we, had, we really didn't, we weren't moored. We were at sea with that. And we were just, because with George, I would, George and I 
would just go crazy with ideas, artistic ideas. And then you'd kind of, and that's kind of the way I made movies anyway, is I always thought if I just go far out enough, I'll pull it back to the story and it'll be very cool. And sometimes that doesn't work. Um, there's some really, I mean, there's some great cool ideas initiation, but I think we were, you know, we were pretty unmoored on that, but that's a bit, that was really a lot of George stuff, but certainly, and I'd worked with George many times and I would always call on him, but what I would never, I would never try to get George to help me do regular special effects because I just thought this is a, a, it's a waste. You take an artist and then you try to have them do something ordinary. Get someone to whom they love that. And I would never like go, George, hey, I need I need a head cut off here. Of course he can do it. But it's like wasting him. Whereas you can get you can get guys who are just dying to show you what they can do with the decapitation. Interesting. I, I was just gonna add to that. I, I'm glad you mentioned uh initiation, Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. Also, I think Zeph helped write that, and you can tell the yeah. cult obsession is there too. But I, I think that's an underrated one. And you know, I I really like how the films you've worked on. You know, I I think you probably were working on modest budgets, but they still look very professional. And I think society looks very professional. How were you able to, you know, juggle budgets and also making the film really look slick, professional, keeping that air to it? I'm not sure. I think with, I mean, Reanimator is super cheap. And I think that worked because we had a theater director who was almost like a genius. And he knew how to, he, he could take those limitations and and I mean, my God, I mean, the acting and directing, the acting, I would say the acting and story directing, I never, I, I never felt like Stewart was, his strength wasn't cinematic directing. His strength was taking a bunch of actors and really telling a story and knowing what it should be. I've never, I mean, I always struggle with that when I try to make a movie. It's just all, it's so hard to figure out what the story is. And then you have to have the facility of dealing with actors, which I've stumbled with always. I, because I've never been an actor. I never had any experience. And Stuart, from the time he was in high school, was directing and acting and doing this stuff. By the time he made Reanimator, he had been, he had been a successful theater He'd been the creative director of a theater in Chicago for like 10 years. So that really worked on a very low budget, although there was a lot of deferments. With, with um, society, it had a bigger budget than Reanimator. And I'm not sure. I think we just, um, I don't know. I mean, we did the best we could, you know, and of course, the thing about Reanimator, it's mainly the third act. It's mainly about the effects, you know. Um, with Initiation, that was a cheapie. 
because that was a guy named Richard Gladstein who worked at a company called L-I-V-E, Live, which you probably um, would recognize as being the company whose president, Menendez, was killed by his kids. Oh! Um, Remember that? Yeah. That happened while we were doing movies over there. And if you think about it, there's a there's a lot in common, I think, with the Menendez brothers and Zeph. I mean, I think I mean you look at you look at the stories they have and stuff, and I don't know. I don't think, you know, it doesn't make sense these for these guys to do what they did, but that that's another another um, topic. In any case, Richard Gladstein, live was a big video distributor. And live was, um, they were picking up movies all the time. This was the heyday of, of VHS before DVD. Even. Mm-hmm. And Richard Gladstein had come out. I, the second movie I did for Wild Street was um, Bride of Reanimator. So I did the sequel to Reanimator. And, um, and then when we were finishing it, we we're looking for a distributor and Richard Gladstein came over from live and he picked it up and put it out. I mean, it wasn't much of a theatrical release, but he picked it up and we became friends. And he said, he told me that he had, that he wanted to get into production and that he had gotten live to agree to let him pick up the rights to a sequels, uh, uh, an IP, a franchise. And that was Silent Night, Deadly Night. And there had been two of them. And the first one was um, had done well. The box office was kind of infamous. Second one kind of dropped off. And then he picked up the rights for probably very little. Um, and they told him he could make the sequels within a certain budget, and there had to be an actor off this this list of fifty or sixty names. Is that, that is that we, why you got Maude Adams? Yeah, yeah, because she was one of those actors. And so this was a formula during the VHS era when Blockbuster was was Netflix, right? And the um, and so. The first one he did was, um, I forget the name of the director, but he did Tulane Blacktop. Monty um, Hellman. Monty Hellman. And because Richard also had kind of a arty kind of bent, because his dad had a, um, had a company in New, he's New Yorker, and his dad had a kind of a famous record store called Colony Records. And they were, and so he kind of had, I'm like a exploitation guy. I mean, I love art movies from the 60s, you know, the new wave and all that. And I, I love did did you grow up on movie. the like uh, Arkoff American International Pictures type stuff? Or well, Yeah, in the 50s, I was, you know, William Castle, you know, I mean, Roger Corman and, uh, you know, all these things, of course. So obviously, look at Dolls. We put Mr. Sardonicus in it. Why do you think? Yeah, Guy Rowling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because we're because we're William Castle people, you know. Um, so 
But I, and of course, I love Bergman and all those things, you know, but I would never make those because I just, when I, the first movie I made, I raised the money. I, I risked, I risked my future to make Reanimator. And by God, I wasn't going to do something. I thought, I love horror. And I, I trust my taste in horror. I'm not sure I trust my taste to make a successful art movie um, or a successful drama, maybe even a successful comedy. But when it comes to horror and fantasy and stuff, I feel like I get it, you know? And so, so that's where I went because I couldn't afford not to, not to recoup. Now, Richard, I don't think he, he was never that guy. He wasn't a, he wasn't a horror fan, but he could appreciate it. And so when he picked up Bride of Reanimator, um, then he, and he was making the Monty Hellman movie. And then he asked, he said, hey, do you want to do one of these? I, I can do another sequel to, um, to Silent Night, Deadly Night. And he already had a script written by some other people at Live by some, some of the, uh, some women executives, or at least one who had some partners. And they had told, that made a story about this, this um, kind of a, a little bit of a feminist thing about a coven of witches. And, um, but they still had the main character from, from Silent Night, Deadly Night, I forget his name, which in the third one, I think he had a, Plastic. Yeah, the fishbowl. Yeah. I think his name was <laughs> Ricky. And it, it's yeah. weird because you do have a, a character named Ricky in you know, initiation, right? You know, the thing is, is that I needed a job. It didn't pay much, but I needed a job. And like I said, I had four kids, man. And, and, and Richard was offering it. And he kind of indicated that we could do whatever you wanted with that script. So at that time, George and I were going bonkers, and so was Zeph, right? So we were all kind of crazy idiots, <laughs> you know, kind of with more ideas than, than um, technique. And um, so I said, sure. And so we started developing it, and it turned into initiation, um, which arguably, I mean, it was very cheap. It's arguably... Uh, you know, not very good, but on the other hand, we kind of shot our wad, you know. And then after that, while I was while I was producing Guyver, um, right, the Screaming Mad George directed movie, yeah, and Steve Wang, Steve Screaming Mad George, um, Richard came out to the set. We were out in Simi Valley or something, and he said, "Hey, do you want to do another?" Another Silent Night. And I felt bad by then because, see, when I did that part four initiation, I subverted the whole idea of a Santa Claus killing. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. And so I didn't. So I even made the main character Jewish, you know, <laughs> and I didn't do any of that stuff, right? And then afterwards, I thought, well, you idiot, you know, you. Why did you do, why would you subvert, you can do a fucking Christmas horror with the killers, you know, 
Why did you do that? I have no idea. I'm, I was out of my mind, what can I say? But I felt bad about it. And so I thought when Richard came out, I said, yeah, I've got an idea for another one. And I wanted to make up for having like not done a Christmas movie. And I said, it's Killer Toys. And it's about Joe Petto. The toy maker. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, have no. to, I have to cut in for, I just wanted to say, I, I loved how you mentioned there's, that back then, you kind of had to get certain name actors or actors that had value uh, that, that people would see on the cover and be like, okay, be maybe I'll box. watch it. It's got to be on the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've always loved about Silent Night, Deathly Night 5, The Toy Maker. You get Mickey Rooney to be in it. Who infamously protested the no, first movie? Like, <laughs> dumped on it. But, Did he realize but it at that I, point? Well, of course he knew what he was doing, but he got he got paid his the fee, mm -hmm. and um, he was great. He was just wonderful. I um the um on the toy maker, which I think I, I the funny thing is is that. I had, when I was going to, when I was developing Reanimator, simultaneously I was developing a script called Laughing Matters, a comedy with this, this writer-director named Martin Katroser. And he was in New York, because at that time I was just looking for a movie to make. I was crazy to make the movie, right? So going to New York, I was going to LA, I was meeting people. And so I was developing Reanimator with Stuart and Dennis Paoli, and I was developing Laughing Matters with Marty because I loved, I liked his short film of it. It was about a cat burglar who was a stand-up comedian. And so, so he would, you know, he would joke when he'd get caught. And I loved it, but when it started getting down to the, like, where, what are you going to jump on? What are you going to put your money on? I thought, man, if that comedy isn't funny, that's it for me. But with the horror movie, I'm going full bore with horror, you know, sex and gore, baby. I know there's an audience for that because I'm one of them, you know, and if it's not funny, the other one. So I went that way and I was kind of felt a little bad because I'd left Marty Kutroser a little, you know, he didn't, you know, we developed, we never made it. And so then it turned out when I was producing Guyver, I hired Marty as a script supervisor. He had, he had become a script supervisor. And we had a very complicated shoot with two directors who each had their own unit. It's not, they're not like the Coen brothers where they sit together and do each scene. They each, there was checkerboard scenes. They're shooting at the same time. It was very complicated. And um, Marty was the guy who was the only one who knew what was going on. And working with him as a script supervisor, he's the best one I ever, I ever worked with. And I've worked with some who were so terrible as the, to the point where they might as well have not even been taking notes. And others, and he's the absolute opposite. He was the guy. And so, when um, Richard came to the set, I told him, well, here's my idea and all this, but I want Marty to direct it mm. and I'll write it with him. 
because it was my idea. And then so I, so I thought, you know what? I want to make it up to Marty for not making laughing. <laughs> I mean, that was in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. And so I put him on with it. So we got him, we co-wrote the script, and then Marty directed it. And we got Screen Mad George to do the toys, um, which honestly, I think he was not the right guy to do the toys. Because once again, it's like Screaming Mad George should do really weird stuff. And the concept of the toys was mechanical things that could kill you. Mm-hmm. So it didn't quite work. And I think we made a mistake. We should have gone the child's play way in which the toys were possessed yes. mm-hmm. of some malevolent spirit so it could do anything. And yet we were sort of in this area where it should be more mechanical. And so I think that's the weakness of the movie. But luckily, when we brought in our name actor and we had the meeting and, 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 and uh, Mickey Rooney came in, who at one point was the biggest movie star in the whole darn world, mm-hmm. Mickey Rooney. And he comes in to do our crap little movie. And play Santa Claus, play an actual killer Santa Claus. That was so great. And I, during the production, we had to hire his Winnebago mm-hmm. and his assistant. And his assistant was his double, his picture double. I mean, his lighting double. So Mickey wouldn't even go out onto the, he would go talk about the blocking, but then he'd go sit in the Winnebago in the in the driver's seat and listen to the Santa Anita racing, the, the horse racing, <laughs> his racing form. I mean, he's he's retro, right? Yeah. And um, and I just hang out with him. He was short, kind of burly, mm-hmm. and he was like almost double my age. But I'll tell you, he could. I wouldn't get into a mess with him. He would flatten me. That guy was powerful, you know? And he was just really, just the greatest guy, just so entertaining, so many stories. He just went totally into the whole story, to to the whole picture, totally gave himself. And you know, he told me once, he said, you know, Brian, you know what the most important movie in Hollywood today is that's in production? I said, what? He said, this one, because I'm in it. <laughs> and, when, and, and that week, he was on The Tonight Show, and he, he mentioned our movie. He promoted our movie because he was in it. And I thought, that's a star. That is the definition of a star. It, Jason, if you don't mind, um, I, I had a few more questions about society, mm-hmm. and, and Brian, if you don't mind as well. No, no. I, okay. I uh, well, I, I was going to ask, so I know that you've talked about this elsewhere, but I think this audience would be really interested in hearing more about it. Uh, I guess society had a very different reaction or reputation, at least in, say, Europe, than it does in the U.S. when it came out or, you know, it's cult following is different in different countries. Could you speak to that? Yeah. Um, now, I'm such an 
I'm such an idiot, right? That I truly thought that society was going to be the number one picture in the box office of America when it came out. I, I truly believe that. Now, I didn't, of course, I, I didn't realize so much back then, but my taste does not match up with America's <laughs> taste. I wish I had the taste of Spielberg. Mm-hmm. What he loves, we all love. But what I love, very few people love. And also, I wasn't a particularly good director. I mean, I wasn't, I was a novice. I didn't know what I was, so I'm, it's, I was clumsy with it. And um, so there's a lot about it that's kind of awkward and clumsy. Now, when it came out, and then I was not ready for the reaction with the mainstream reviewers on this movie, and there weren't many back then. This is before Rotten Tomatoes and all that. We're talking the trades, the big newspapers. And I remember um, Zeph and I were on the, it was like the second or third day of shooting Bride of Reanimator. And we were on the set and we got Daily Variety that had the review of society man, they could not have been more cruel, you know? I mean, it was awful. And then we're making another movie, you know? And, it, and even my friends, and when we finished this Bride, the, um, you know, and even my friends kind of didn't like society. It was kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, that's okay. They liked Bride of Reanimator, you know? Did the, did so the class- really that, huh? Did the class element hit him too too hard over the head? Because you're really... I don't know what it was. I think a lot of people... I don't know. I think a lot of... Was it really backwards tits? Maybe. I I have to put it all on the shunting. I think there was a... I know the review in Variety was very very derogatory using... It was kind of a little... Kind of homophobic. I mean, there was a there was a sense that this was. I mean, I think they even called it that. They called it rough trade, gay porn or something. You know, I mean, it was like really, you know, just kind of missing the fun of it. I mean, I didn't. I don't know. It was to me, it was deliriously wonderful. I thought, man, I can't believe I got to do this. You know, it was. I mean. It was just seemed so great to me, mm-hmm. and then it was you know, and and it didn't even come out here. And then the company that bought the U.S. rights had also bought. It was a it was a British company called Medusa, and they bought the British rights, and they they also bought the U.S. rights. So they released it first in Britain, in the U.K., and over there. It was released as a real movie. It got great reviews. Hey, even Sight and Sound magazine in the UK, which is like Tahir's the cinema for Britain. Yeah. It was like, it's like the, the frou-frou cinema, cinema, cinema magazine. They even hired me to write an article and, and, they, and it was quite successful there. But this is pre-internet. 
So you don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. You know, people tell you, oh, we got a release here. Billy Warlock went to London around that time and he was on Baywatch then. And he told me he got off the plane and there were all these reporters going, hey, society. <laughs> and I said, really? I, don't, I, don't, I didn't believe it, kind of. I mean, not my world. I was busy. Mm -hmm. And but then and then it was released here and it was like nothing. And but in like UK, they society was seen as something good and Bride was seen as sort of embarrassing, Bride of Reanimator. Really? So it was just the opposite. And then over then I started realizing that in France it was okay, and in Spain, in Italy, you know, so there were some European areas, it, it seemed like maybe it did okay, and or was received okay. And then as um, time went by, it was like around 208, 207, it, it got a new, it got kind of discovered, you know, I think it was a new generation. And I have theories about that. Um, I think about, I think, some of the awkwardness or the weakness of the movie um, 20 years later is seen as, they don't see it as that, they see it as like the 80s. And I liken that to when, when J-horror was happening, the Japanese mm -hmm. horror, the ring and the grudge and mm -hmm. dark waters and all those. And, um, and I would watch them with my friends, those movies. And something would happen, you know, they're the ones with the girl with the mm -hmm. hair down in front of her. And I'd say, well, that's really ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And they say, no, it's Japanese. That's Japanese. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, well, when I when society was in Europe. They're thinking a lot of the kind of awkward parts, or the not good parts. They're going, well, that's America. That's kind of American <laughs> teenage. But in this country, they go, that wasn't very good at all. You know? mm -hmm. And then later, when the generation, another generation in our country, I think the younger gen, they come and they watch society, and one. One, they've never seen anything like the shunting because it wasn't seminal. Nobody yeah. ever did it again. It's like yeah. watching the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. You go, where are all the movies like Dr. They, they don't exist. But where are the movies like the shunting? Well, they don't. I mean, some people have um, borrowed stuff from it. But you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, the, and I think the younger generation looks at it and they look at everything from the 80s, from the VHS time, and they are very forgiving. They go, oh, that was the 80s. So I think time, mm -hmm. <laughs> time helps, helps you get accepted. You know? <laughs> it, it is interesting the way we, we revisit the 80s, especially the VHS era of horror there seems to be, and I don't know if it's because there's so many uh, Gen Xers like myself that uh, grew up with the local video store and then cable TV where I found most of these films. Um, 
that that it has a kind of a special i don't even want to say a special place in my heart some of these movies are like ingrained on my dna because i watch them so much on on cable um being a latchkey kid home alone um well we it's like i for i am so forgiving of 70s horror movies you know scared let's scare jessica to death i just watched that when it came out you know yeah it wasn't that good i watch it now and i go wow that is you know there was something very honest about the mm-hmm. about the storytelling and i think there was a kind of honesty about the storytelling in the 80s as well and you are right about this was the reagan era it was the greed is good and there was a whole level, you know, when society was made, when it came out, it was not cool to not be into the greatest good thing. Well, it, can, you know, can I, it yeah, I, I was, was going to say. not cool at all. And in Europe, it's all the idea of class in this country back then mm. was like, there's no class. Yeah. You work hard, you're going to get rich, you know. And if you say, no, that's actually not true systemically that's not true now you you, you come know? out of you come out of the new left kind of hippie movement of the of the 60s and there's directors that we talk about on this show all the time um that i feel the politics in that they came out of influenced some of the filmmaking carpenter has they Absolutely. live you have Absolutely. society i mean hell lucas has star wars Hey, um, taxi driver. Taxi driver. They're, they're, you know, I so, mean, you can't get yeah. away from it. You you do represent the time you are in. I was going to say, in regards to that class element, do you think one of the reasons it may have been rediscovered is, you know, I, I mean, in the 2010s and, and before that, you know, we, we sort of have the Occupy Wall Street movement and Absolutely. whatnot. Do you think that helped it? Absolutely. I think that I think the Great Recession. Absolutely. I do. And I think that um, and I think that in this country, I think there is more, you know, there was a huge crushing of um, of any kind of socialist ideas in this country um, coming from the, um, you know, the 50s with McCarthyism and I'm not defending, I'm not defending Stalin. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about that. Yeah. I'm just talking about Roosevelt yeah. and, and Johnson. I think that there was a crushing of it and there was, and you got to the point and then Reagan, of course, took it and ran and they, and it, and the whole, the whole putting down of non of anything that would kind of kind of take any riches away from the the big corporations and the and the billionaires and stuff i mean anything it was all ridden on the back of racism and and, um and you know xenophobia and that's what reagan did and then they had this whole thing in in the 80s which i lived through in which all of a sudden it was like, hey man, greed is good. I mean, they even said, didn't they say it in the Wall Street? That yeah. movie? Right, in Stone's yeah. Wall Street. Greed is yeah. good. And people believed it. They said, you know what? what? What drives our economy is greed and 
corporations have no, they have no obligation to anybody. And they don't have any obligation to the community. They only have an obligation to make more money for the people that own them. And when you get, when you take that step, well, this is where we end up. You know, if, if these huge companies have no responsibility, I mean, they pretty much run the economy and yet they have no responsibility to the populace. And of course they keep, and the, the, the populist politicians keep that, are financed by that, and they keep it running by, by feeding off of xenophobia, racism, classism, sexism, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's the other, and, and I, hey, right now we're in an incredibly uh, dangerous um, time where the right wing kind of the, you know, the dictatorial fascist forces, it's getting, it's happening all over the world. It's not just here, you know, this is a, this is what's going on, but they're, they're, I mean, in the eighties, Reagan changed it. They took, they, you know, what was basically the house of representatives was basically a democratic institution coming out of Roosevelt. Well, yeah, and, and you had Reagan crushing. I was going to say you had Reagan crush the air traffic controllers union and yeah, 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 stop the union. But look what's happening now. The I mean, there's there's strikes all over. Unionization is not dead. You know, it's happening. It's happening all over. Um, so I don't. I think that I think that, I don't know what they call the generation now. You know, Taylor Swift generation or whatever it is, right? But I do think that there is, I, I, you know, I think there is a, a imbalance in the electoral college and in the Senate in terms of representation, because there's a real imbalance with how, I, I get it that, that every state should be independent and stuff, each get, but you look at that some senators represent like 500,000 people. Mm-hmm. And then in New York or California, they represent like 20 million mm-hmm. people. You know, it's obviously not, it, I mean, is that right? No, you know, but the, um, but I do think that there's a, a, a you know, it, hopefully it's the last gasp of a horrible creature, <laughs> a horrible monster that's, that's just going to try to, bring down the temple mm-hmm. <laughs> as they die, hopefully, right? Mm-hmm. There was uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you about society. I know that the story is really centered on Bill Whitney, the character played by Billy Warlock, uh, but I think I mentioned this to you in an email. For me, what makes the movie work is actually uh, Devin DeVasquez as Clarissa, <laughs> and I've talked to Zeph about this. I feel like in the original script, uh, he told me that the character was a bit different, a bit more sinister. Whereas in society, you end up really, I, I felt really bad for her at certain points, you know, like she's really, she cares about uh, Bill, but once he finds out what she is, you know, he's like put off by it. There's that yeah. one moment uh, where, you know, uh, near in the third act, the shunting, where she helps him out and then he 
looks at her and he's like disgusted and she's all upset. She thought he was going to say, I love you or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she's like, for me, uh, a really important part of that movie also has the best line in that movie where she says, uh, how would you like your tea? Cream, sugar, or would you like me well, to pee in well, it? That, well, that's Steph <laughs> all over. I mean, that's Steph. You know, the character didn't end up, I mean, I think the character originally, yeah, it was a more sinister character because in the, in the script, in the original script, in this script, right, the very original script that was handed to me by Rick Fry, she is kind of sinister, um, but that's not where we took it. And as the script evolved, the there were, you know, that um, coffee, tea, or would you like me to pee in it, or, or whatever it was, that was a, that was really all over her personality. And I'm not sure that that, I don't think that that, that character was, I think it could have been, I think it, I think that the original script had more of that than we ended up with. Um, and I also think that it was something very difficult for Devin DeVasquez because it's a, there's a lot of irony. There's a lot of subtext and and irony and smart sarcasm that was originally with that character. And it's a very hard thing to act. And I don't, and I wasn't enough, a a good enough director to, to bring that out. I think today I might could do it, but I was like a novice. I was a neophyte. Um, but, and you know, it's really kind of funny because I was at a screening of a movie that I was, that I executive produced recently called Suitable Flesh. Uh, that's directed by Joe Lynch. It's a, it's a, it's a script that Stuart Gordon and I began, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, based on the thing on the doorstep, uh, Lovecraft story. And Dennis Paley wrote a script for it and then it went into, hibernation and then barbara crampton asked me if i knew of any projects and i said hey dennis has this really cool lovecraft story and so she you know barbara crampton now is like really a really a kind of a little mogul she's she's a producer and um and so her partner bob portal with amp films so they got it they developed it they got joe lynch and and you know it was made with Heather Graham and Barbara. We flipped the sexes of the main characters where they did. And um, they had a screening at the Aero Theater in, in um, Santa Monica, I think it was last week. And I went to it. And when I was, we were doing the pre-movie cocktails and stuff, I met um, the, the actress that, um, that, we had originally cast for Clarissa. Mm. And she said, don't you remember me? I said, you fired me right before the shoot. <laughs> you know? It was very, I mean, it's, of course, it's, it's very awkward because I'm, um, 
you know, the problem is when you, you know how it is, you live somewhere, you bump into everybody again and again. And, um, but she was very cool and um, said, you know, the thing is, I knew you were worried about the nudity. And she, and she was, she was like, I think she was in college at that time. Mm-hmm. And she said, I, you know, I, and she was a great actress and very attractive and, you know, really studied acting. And, um, and she was great, but there was this feeling that she just wasn't going to go for the nudity. And for me, that was a big thing. Mm-hmm. And I, and I told her, I said, you know, it was like the last minute. And I'd had her over to my house with the whole cast and we had dinner, the whole thing. And then I started realizing that I think she felt uncomfortable with what was in the script. And, um, and I, I remember calling the, the producer, Keith Wally, just that weekend before we started shooting. And I said, you know, I don't think this is going to work. Let's take Devin because we had we had read Devin and Devin was she had been. Hey, the the first night of shooting, she called up Sylvester Stallone to tell oh. him that she got the part. You know? Oh, okay. <laughs> and she was a girlfriend of Sloth. Yeah, know? and and she was so excited, and she, of course she's gorgeous. I think she was a play playmate or something. And so she didn't have a problem with the, with the nudity because she was used to that. She wasn't as experienced of an actress, um, but she certainly was, you know, pedal to the metal, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and and I told the previous um, Clarissa that I think part of what triggered me was that on on reanimator we had already cast megan very close to the time of shooting and we were already doing scenes we were we had a a a, um, rehearsal hall and stewart was running um bruce abbott and um and Jeffrey Combs and the original Megan Halsey through scenes and she got cold feet. Mm. She said her mother had read the script and, and so we replaced her. And a lot of my, you know, this was my first time directing and really the most, I learned directing by watching Stuart Gordon. You know what I mean? Mm. I made three movies with him and I sat there and I watched how he did it. And I went through the whole process. And in a way that was my school. For Not a bad day. place to learn. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think maybe you're better off <laughs> maybe starting earlier, <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't wait till you're, you know, 40 years old, you know? Um, but um and I think that was when I was talking with her, I said, you know, that could have been, I was embarrassed and she wasn't at all. You know, mm-hmm. She was just like, hey, you know, I remember you, blah, blah, blah. And, and I realized that that, could, that was probably part of, you know, one of the things that Stuart was sure of 
because he was a theater guy, it was a little bit uncompromising. And, and I'm not uncompromising like Stuart, for example, with the script. Like Stuart would almost tell the actors sometimes how to read the part or how to hold their glass or, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm not that confident and I'm usually not even that confident about the script. And, you know, I'm, I remember on The Dentist once there was a scene with Corbin Bernson and I forget the name of the tax man. And, and there was a, some dialogue that I was, I, I was, a, I was not confident about. And so I talked to Corbin and I said, you know, I don't know about this. Let's maybe we could do, have a different dialogue there. And Corbin said, oh, I know how to do this. Don't worry, I'll do it, you know. But that's my inclination is I'll, I'll change the dialogue working with the actor. Whereas Stuart, I never, never remember him doing that. He does rehearsals. I don't know, maybe he would change it in rehearsals, but he's a little more dictatorial about, about the, you know, I guess it's, these are the lines, do it that way. <laughs> Whereas I'm, I think I'm not that confident. But anyway, it was a, um, it was interesting. And I think Clarissa, she, I mean, she's such, she's such a weird character in society. Um, there's only one line of dialogue I would like to edit out of the movie if I was George Lucas. And that's when she lets Billy loose from the noose and she says, I love you. Right. Every time I see that, I kind of, I just cringe. I just, oh my God, how could I? Because I had this idea and I have had it a lot in movies. Don't back off from sentimentality. But in that case, it just was wrong. <laughs> I, I mean, to be fair, I love that part because the, the expression oh, he has you, on you. her face where, mm -hmm. he, where he's like, ooh, but you're that monster thing. You know? yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, it's a it's a romp. It's a it's a it's a high school hijinks movie. I, I mean, in the 80s, it really hits the I mean, it is the format for the high school hijinks movies. You know, I mean, it it is of its time. You know, hey, uh, and so I think his I think his girlfriend Shauna is terrific. Right. Yes, she's Heidi hilarious. Kozak, I think was her name. Hilarious. Was, uh, I mean, it's it's. I just think it's so satirical. You know, it's just. No, I think so there's satirical. a lot of humor in it. Uh, I I was I just remembered, and I need to ask this because, for me, for as much humor and, and satire as there is in the movie. The one part that always scares the crap out of me is the beginning where you have the that that variation on the Eaton Boating song that's known for, you know, it's it was a song associated, a school song associated with Eaton College. And you do that variation with those creepy lyrics that start out about, you know, when you're at the top of the class, you have fun and you drink. And then it gets into those lyrics about whether you're a killer or a sinner. And it's done in this very creepy way. How did the Eaton Boating song uh, get included in, and where did that idea come from? Well, that was the, that was the composers. I didn't I didn't suggest it to them. It's I, I didn't even. Yeah. I, I think the thing is, is that 
the two producers of the movie, Paul White and Keith Wally, are both Brits. And the movie and the composers are Brits. And the movie worked the best in UK. And I think part of it was they brought a class sensibility that in, that in UK is like breathing. Nobody questions it. I mean, you can tell what somebody's class is by their accent. Mm -hmm. And so I would never have known how to, you know, what, you know, of course, once I heard it, I go, oh, wow, that's, you know, it's, uh, you know, it seems, and, and of course, the Blue Danube, that's from 2001, you know, we've seen that. But the whole idea, I, I think, especially in the UK, that means more than it does to us. I, I know we've been going two hours here, so we, we have to let you go uh, at some point. But I, I was also going to ask, uh, with regards to society, I know there's been, Zeph was saying he wanted to write a sequel to it. I know Stephen Byro of uh, Unearthed Films uh, wrote, wrote a treatment or a screenplay called uh, Society to Body Modification. Were there ever <laughs> any plans for a sequel? I tried. Um, I, um, I, you know... Zeph and I have, are just about finished with a novelization of society. Ooh. So we're, you know, writing a book about it. And, um, and, and it's, it's the movie, right? Mm -hmm. And we, and uh, so it'll be, I mean, it's pretty much done. We're just going through, we're just doing typos and stuff now. And I have um, been through, I've done many deals to make um, a limited series of society. People talk to me about a sequel. They, they never panned out. And, um, but I do have a, tr a pretty developed sequel to society that takes place in, the, in these, um, these um, nightclubs, like on Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset mm -hmm. Strip, you know, these, clubs where you've got to wait in line on the, mm. the the red carpet and the guys there with the list and are you they let you know how it's like that mm -hmm. that whole thing where you can't get in and then and i certainly my experience of it is more when i'd go to the Cannes film festival there's lots of parties with lots of famous people and stuff and you got to be on the list and then if you get in to the big party, um, you find out that all the famous, all the big people, they're in the VIP room. Mm -hmm. So you got in, but you're not in the VIP room. And if you go into the VIP room, you find out there's a VVIP, mm -hmm. room, the, real, the real stars. Mm -hmm. And I and I did research with a guy that I that that my my I have a daughter-in-law who is really into that scene. And, sh and so I went to a, 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 one of her friends has a number of these clubs in LA. And I went before it started and see how they make the list. And I quizzed them and I just spent the evening and, and talked to, and there's different ones. Some of them, you got to kind of like go through a hotel kitchen to get to, you know, there's no, you don't even know it's there, you know? 
and some of them are right. You know, they're, they're, there's lots of levels of, of being kept out. And then there's lots of famous people. And then he's saying, no, after you get through the VVIP, he says, the big thing is, do you get to go to the after party? <laughs> and then if you can get to the after party, you get, mm. and that'll be like in some Bel Air mansion, you get to the after party and then you can't get upstairs. You're kept, there's always a level that you're not let into. And he had some pretty amazing stories that I won't share because they're a, a bit obscene, mm. but uh, with about famous people mm. and probably libelous, right? And, but so that world kind of fascinates me because the thing about society is that you're not a part of it. And I think that there's the story of society with Bill Whitney is that Bill was there. And when he saw how horrible, what the reality was, he was disgusted. He was offended. And, to, and so the, the sequel that I worked with, with um, my partner, John Penny, it has to do with a girl who wants to get in. She's just Ooh. dying. There. And of course, today, a Bill Whitney would want to be a part of it because this is how corrupt we are. Now. I won't go into the details, mm. but but I do plan on when we finish this novelization, I told Seth, I said, let's write a novel based on the sequel. Even if it doesn't get made into a movie, at least we can, at least we'll get it out there. And I think that'll be a lot of fun, but I'd love to do a sequel to it. You know? I, I want to see great. that. And, and one of the things in the sequel is that the younger generation of society have real problems with the older generation because they're doing, they're, they're not going through the process. They, all the, all the ritualistic aspects of the shunt, they're doing these pop-up shunts called splinters <laughs> with very little prep. It's very messy. <laughs> and they will just do a splinter at a fucking club in the back room. And the parents are going crazy. But I like that, like the generational conflict. They, you have to have them live stream their their pop up shunt. Like it has to be. Oh, of course, of course. You know, Everything's probably going. Yeah, be, it's all on TikTok. You know. like, and people TikTok? say, "Oh, that's all AI shit." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that. That would be the the even funnier part that they're live streaming their shunting, which the the, the idea. I mean, that's one of the terrible. I think that's one of the terrible things today is that I think people have just. I think that for the most part, people have just accepted the, they've accepted this, this kind of idea that anybody who's really wealthy is just better and smarter than us, you know, that they more deserving, you know, and I think that's like just one of the worst things happening. Yeah. I'm just hoping that's going to change, you know. <sighs> We can all hope there is there is some hope in the in the labor movement that I have. Other than that, that's where 
So I'm going to leave my hope there. And then the youth. I went to see. I went to see a projection of of society. This is a couple three years ago. I saw it listed somewhere, so I showed up, and it was the. I think it was called. I'm trying to remember the name of the group. It's like is it the American Socialist Party or something? There's DSA, some, Democratic Socialists of America. Maybe that's okay. it. And it was like in some weird outdoor place, and I went with my friend, and we chased it down. It was just like about 50 people with folding chairs that had a screen up. And then afterwards, I said, hey, I'm the director. I want to take some questions. And it was just hilarious because I said, I want to go see, I want to see society with a bunch of socialists. You know? I want to I get that audience. And did they dig it? A lot of fun. Of course, of course they did. You know, but I think they were all kind of intimidated or something. You know, you know those those groups, political groups, are very inbred. You know, non-mainstream one, non-mainstream parties. Mm-hmm. They're pretty inbred. There's, it's not. Uh, I, I think even big-time parties. It's a core of people that um, that you know. It's what your relationship was with the core. So I think I think they just weren't used to used to. That. I, don't know. I just wanted to hear the discussion afterwards. I wanted to hear somebody watch the movie, and it wasn't being watched as a horror movie. <laughs> it was being watched as a socialist. As a, as a commentary on today's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, oh, I think oh. that's really interesting. You know. It is a great commentary. I mean, rewatching it again and and checking out the girlfriend, the way she, you know, was dying so hard to be kind of in the in crowd, I think kind of speaks to your idea of the sequel. Um, you know, people, you know, dying to to get in to, with these horrible people, because they're they're pretty horrible without even knowing about the shunting. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I think the the shunting is the well, I don't know. When you start dealing with people like Epstein and stuff like that, and he's not even really society, neither is Clinton. These mm. guys are nouveau riche. Mm-hmm. You're not talking about the you're not talking about the real society. You know, I think that's where we the people that the real society we kind of don't even know their names, you know. You know, we look at celebrities and people who just made it big you know sam bank and free mm-hmm. you know i mean these these people aren't the ones that's that are to my mind it's it's there's families who really just own a lot and why would anybody who has real power mm-hmm. want anybody to know their name or their face or you know and i'm not i'm not trying to be like QAnon here i'm not trying to be like conspiracy, all this. I'm just kind of saying in a rational, logical way, people who shoot up in wealth and celebrity and power are not people who have real power, mm-hmm. you know? I, yeah, I, I, you I was just going to add to that because I've, I've spoken to um, people that are like really, really old money, like, um, I've spoken to like a baron out of like Ireland that's into filmmaking now. And it is interesting. I think that really, really old money, 
they experience life in such a different way because really everything they're getting is handed down to them. You know, uh, the estate, everything else is, is handed down to them. It's almost like they live in a different world. In a way, they they, they are alien in the sense of, uh, you know, they just live a very different life, you know, and their mannerisms are different uh, because they're kind of disconnected from the rest of us. They're, they're so rich that they're, uh, there's sort of a, a disconnection from them with the rest of us. I have a suggestion for you guys. Mm-hmm. I have a suggestion for a guest for you. We're listening. And okay, his name is Hamish McAlpine. Hamish McAlpine produced some horror movies like Ed Gein, okay. The Hillside Strangler. I, yeah, you know, yeah, the Chuck Carrillo movies. Yeah. Yeah, they, and, and I think the producer was a guy who was the production manager on Reanimator, um, Mike, uh, Michael Muscow. Now, Hamish, is Scottish, but he just in his family, the McAlpines, I think they're like the biggest construction company in the UK, huge. And he got into movies and he is upper class by God. And, and he can't, you can't miss it, but he's into movies and he had a company called Tartan Video. They had, had all the Asian stuff. Who, yeah. His partner was the one that kind of ran it, but I think he killed himself. And and Hamish ended up, you know, it kind of got a little shaky after that. But in any any case, Hamish, his father died early, just like a few years ago. And he now has inherited the title. I think he his great-great-grandmother was like the lady in waiting for Queen somebody, like Queen Mary or something. So he's absolutely old money, or at least UK, pretty, you know, old money. He's in the movie business. He's done horror movies that you have seen Mm -hmm. and has actually kind of a, um, kind of a, a, Uber, right? He's got the serial killer movies. Mm-hmm. I think he would be a great guest for you because you could ask him about his horror movies, which I'm sure he'd be loved to talk to you about. And you could ask him about how his family and his upbringing influenced or informed Mm-hmm. His appreciation, taste, and production of movies. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it would be an underhanded type of thing, but you might find that if you ask the right questions, you might get. Would, would you Would you be one? Would you be one we could talk to for an in to to get a hold of? Yeah, them? I will give you. I could give you the contact. But I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I'll give you the contact to Mike Muscal, and you could even. You might even want to have the two of them on. Mike Muscal, <laughs> Mike Muscal was the guy that answered my ad when I was making an amateur movie with the 60 millimeter Bolex. <laughs> okay. And I brought him out to LA. And he ended up being, he ended up doing like big time special effects. I think he was the sec- effects supervisor on Bride of Chucky and he oh, wow. was on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. 
and he produced, I think he pro produced, um, Ed, I think he might have produced Ed Gein with Hamish, uh, and Ch Chuck Perillo directed. I think Stephen, Stephen Johnston is another guy that he wrote those things. He, he's really good. But maybe you don't want to have Hamish on alone, right? Because maybe it's not, might be hard. I don't know how good you are at kind of drawing people out. You know, them. you know, it's hard sometimes. Um, we but, have our ways. Um, or you kind of have a couple other people. You don't, have, don't do it just with Hamish. You do it with the writer, you know, Mike Muscower with Steve Johnston. But anyway, I think this would be great because you would have a, absolutely something, somebody who is arguably from the society world, mm -hmm. arguably, because this is, I think he's, I don't know what his title is now, if he's an Earl or whatever, Jesus. but, but he's, he, I think, he, who was he telling, somebody told me, he said, hey, I've got, I could never spend the money I've got now. It's impossible, right? This is a big family, the McAlpines, the Scottish. And he's got, and you could ask him about his, um, his, his ancestry, you know, where he goes. Because when you're talking about British royalty, you're talking about society, man. They're not like the Habsburgs, you know. The Habsburgs, <laughs> they made a mistake. They didn't shunt. They didn't shunt. <laughs> so you know, the concept of shunting is that when you have blue bloods, mm -hmm. and the blue bloods all intermarry, it's all incestuous. Mm -hmm. And if you totally intermarry, it's like the Habsburgs. They had the weird shoes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're idiots and all this because they didn't, they're, they're too narrow. So what's in the movie society, the argument is that they bring these mongrels like Bill Whitney and raise them to spike, to get give a better genetic um, kind of spread. Just like with dogs, when you, if you have a German shepherd and you're breeding them, you keep breeding German shepherds, they end up with hip dysplasia. Mm -hmm. They just have problems. So you take a mongrel and you put it into the mix and that kind of gets rid of it. That's what they do with dog breeding. So of course, that's what society would do. I, I was going to ask, with, with society itself, within the movie, we're never really told whether they're aliens from outer space, but I get the impression they've been with us for a long time that they may not even be from outer space or something like that. No, no, they're not from outer space. My, my theory, and I didn't want to do the blackboard where the doctor tells yeah. the story because I thought, who needs that, right? Mm -hmm. I'm We're glad just you going did. for the fun of it. Mm -hmm. But the logic is there. I've got an, I've, I've worked out all the logic. <laughs> so they, back in caveman times, Neanderthal times, they, the there was a kind of a um, parasite that came out from the earth from underground and it infected some proto-humans and when it infected them it gave them the power to dominate the others and then they intermarried and created a literal blue ones 
So it's kind of like in 2001 when the monolith shows up and the, and the cavemen, one of them touches it, then who can go kill the rest and be the leader? It's that kind of, that kind of idea. Not that they came from outer space. I don't like the idea of from outer space. That's, that's more of a Lovecraft thing, I think. Coming from underground, from inside the earth, that, that indicates psychology, mm -hmm. right? If, you, if it's something from outer space, that indicates it's something from outside of us. And so the conceit of society, if we want to get kind of all symbolic and everything, would be that we're talking about something that's inside of all of us, right? And that would be the earth. So it's, a, it's, more, it's more of a, it comes from our ground and it infects us and then you create literal blue bloods like the Habsburg, except in this case, they know better <laughs> and can take these, you know, strapping young men that aren't part of, that aren't, you know, whose gene pools are quite broad to spike the breed. And then if you're, then you say, well, why do they have a whole shunting? Couldn't they just, why do they do this whole thing about, about like fooling Bill, making a whole kind of theatrical mystery, and and you know what I mean. Why would they go through all that, the hunt, and, and why don't they? And why don't they make a big deal? Why don't they just do a shunt to do it because that's all they have to do? And my answer is the same reason we don't just eat protein bars. Yeah. So we could, you know, what we do is we have a seven course meal. Mm -hmm. And we discuss how they killed the boar and where it came from, where the wine came from. And, and we have nice tables and we have people waiting and we have atmosphere and music and we tell a story about our meals. And we make a whole big thing out of eating when in fact, why do we have to? We don't have to do that. We're just mm -hmm. getting nutrition, but we make it a whole ritualistic event and that's my explanation for the shunting it's like there's no business like show business said dr cleveland it's right they really fun. enjoy it the, the yeah, society enjoys it's, it it's a game exactly and, and so do we if we have the money to go to a big time restaurant or a pop-up restaurant mm -hmm. or any kind of special special kind of event we don't have to do that we could take protein powder. I don't know. Mm -hmm. We could, you know what I mean? But we don't do it that way because we're human. And I guess society is sort of human. They're parasites. They're parasites who have, who have overcome their human hosts. They can't live on their own. So anyway, I think from my point of view, it's a true story. <laughs> That's how we watched it earlier today. Uh, Absolutely. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I'm so glad we were able to talk to you today. Thank you so much for taking more it time. Than the time we're gonna have. Um, do you have anything to say on the way out, JG? No, I just want to thank you so much, Brian. And one, one day we'll have to speak to you again because I didn't even get to ask you about working with Corbin Bernson and Paul Nashie. So <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm always here, you know. <laughs> he he says always, that. I, you know what? I'm always happy to talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, look, I look forward we to all, We all should be so lucky, right, that someone wants to listen to us. I, I was also going to really say real quick, um, <laughs> I just wanted to say, uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, that you have a new film that you're producing, uh, that, that suitable flesh movie, because Joe Lynch is a really underrated uh, filmmaker when it comes to the newer horror directors. Yeah, I mean, I, I was like executive producer. It's not, it's Barbara Crampton, Bob Portal, Joe Lynch, but I, I was involved with it. And it's, and it was a movie that I originated with Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli. So I, it was something we were going to do um, after Dagon. And we just never got around to it. But Joe did it with Barbara. Hey, all, all kudos to Barbara, man. She is like a, she's a mo, she's a, a mini mogul. She's killing it in the in the horror genre. She, she is. Really is. She's doing really great. I mean, she's just into it. You know, she's just really into it, and I appreciate that. I really, she, really she's admire She's on. Her. She's on my list of people I'd like to talk to. Well, you should talk to her. She'll go on. You you yeah, act do like it's for, so do easy. It for, do it. For, well, yeah. I mean, you could. Either get she would do it alone. You could do her alone. No, I think she would she would get on and talk because she, she's got tons of movies to talk about. If you wanted to talk about um, suitable for she did also Jacob's wife. Yeah. Portal, but you could have her and Bob Portal do. You know they would. But Barbara, of course, has reanimated from beyond. You know the, all the movies she did with Stewart and. I mean, she, and she had all the whole, um, the whole soap opera career. Mm -hmm. And why did she come back? You know, she quit acting. Yeah. And married um, Bob Beckman, who's a financial guy in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. They moved to Marin County, and um, and she raised a family, and. Um, then I saw her when at the opening of um, Reanimator the Musical play here in LA. And she, she came, I hadn't seen her in years. And I asked her, and then I started seeing her at these, at these screenings of weird cheap horror movies. Mm. And, and I was going, wow, she's just supporting all this oddball stuff, you know. And she was in um, that movie, um, Beyond the Gate, mm -hmm. um, and um, Jackson, Jackson Stewart. And, and I said, why did you decide to get back into mood horror movies? And she said, you know, I mean, don't quote me because she can tell you the story. But I remember her saying that um, she says, you know, I go to these dinners in San Francisco and, and of all these financial people and all anybody wanted to talk about was the horror movies I was in. And she, I, I don't know, I guess that, or maybe she just thought I'm gonna, I wanna reconnect. And you know what she did is she, she sold, they sold the house in Marin and they bought a place just a couple miles from here. And she just became just as absolutely determined. I mean, she just is, um, she's like producing, man. She's making projects and 
And still as beautiful as ever, too. Yeah. Huh? Still as beautiful for as ever, too. <laughs> what? She's still as beautiful as ever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she's, yeah, she, it's amazing. You know, some people get better with age. Mm-hmm. You know? But mm-hmm. uh, not me, but, you know. <laughs> but I think that um, she would be, I think she's, uh, she has, I mean, I think she is, uh, she's probably got a lot to talk about. And especially if you focus it on what she's trying to do now, not so much about. That's kind of what I want to talk to her about. Talking about Reanimator and from beyond. I mean, she sends those interviews all the time. It's okay. Yeah. But the idea that she has, and especially if you if you mentioned suitable flash, then she's promoting it. Of course, she's going to come on. Of course, she's going to talk about it. You know, because that's what it's all about: is getting people to talk about it and to be out there and to get your audience to be even know about it, right? to know what she's doing. Well, JG, we have, we have a mission. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you everybody for okay. watching. Hey, this was fun. I enjoyed talking to you guys and anytime. anytime. I'm, I'm holding you to part two. We need to talk about Faust next time. Ooh. Well, oh, there's, there's, oh, I'm happy to talk about all those movies. Okay. Well, thank you guys for checking it out. And we are out. Okay. Adios, muchachos. to do is be careful about criticizing the government.